uh, under God's Word, to worship Him together in all the, the ways that we do that. And uh, that, that's a powerful thing that we get to do. And um, we, we get to do that for many reasons, and um, mainly because of what God has done for us. And so what a, what a joy for us to be able to do that this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and we're going to be covering 23 through 31 this morning. As you see in your, in your outline that you have in your bulletin there, you can uh, fill in there. I tried to leave adequate room uh, to write down what you need to, whether it's verses that you want to look up later or certain points, uh, thoughts that were raised that you want to ponder or something like that. And also, if, if questions arise that you want to ask me later, write those things down so you don't forget them and then corner me somewhere and ask me those questions. I love to answer questions, and uh, so go ahead and write those things down. And um, we can discuss those things later. So you're turning to Acts chapter 4. And uh, bef- before we get started with our passage this morning, I want to encourage you with a couple of things. And uh, one has to do with baptism. That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have trusted Him for salvation and you have not been baptized, then we would love to give you the opportunity to do that. We will have a baptism on the 1st, which is also Resurrection Sunday. So what a blessed day to be baptized. And so if you are that person, you, you know Christ, you are a Christian, and you have not yet been baptized, come and talk to one of us. Talk to Chris Ward or, or uh, Woody or me, and, and we can get that set up. We would love to, to do that with you. We'd love to talk with you about that. And connected with that, baptism is discipleship. You know, I think of the Great Commission that we are to go and uh, make disciples, baptizing and, and baptizing them and teaching them. And I think about when I first became a believer, one of the great blessings to me when I was a brand new Christian was that I got to be discipled. Someone sat down with me with the Bible open and read the Bible and helped me learn to interpret my life through the lens of the Bible. That's not a thing that's done outside of the church to interpret our lives in light of the Bible. We tend to go the other direction naturally. And so one of the great benefits of being discipled is that you get to learn the Bible, not just for what it says as if it were some subject matter out there separate from us, but we're learning what it says so that we can interpret our lives through it. And so what a blessed thing to be able to do. And so we encourage you, if you've not been discipled, if you've uh, not met with someone regularly to learn the Word, to learn how to interpret your life through the Word, uh, your areas of obedience or, or um, how to understand situations or the world around you or even your own heart, we would encourage you to, to do that. Find someone who is uh, mature in the faith and would uh, be willing to do that. Certainly, our Sunday mornings are a part of that. Our connect groups are a part of that where we are discipling and we're learning to follow after Christ and interpret our lives in light of the Bible. So we would encourage you uh, to that end as well. Before I move into our passage today, uh, I want to go to the Lord in prayer and particularly because the topic we're going to be discussing is very close to home. Not, not just for me, but for every one of you. And as I think around the room, it's it's particularly close to home. And so I want to pray that our hearts would be submitted to God and to His Word, that we would interpret even those situations which are, are very uh, painful in many, many cases, very close to us, that we would interpret even those situations in light of what God's Word says. And so let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning grateful that we get to do so, grateful that Jesus has 
given his own body and his own blood that we might be reconciled to you, that we might be able to come to you, that we might have such fellowship with you, such relationship with you, that we can even come in this context and pray, bring our requests to you. And before we do that, we worship you. We give you glory and we say that you are high and lifted up. You are almighty God and we are not. Nor is there any God like you. And so we bow down to you and we praise you. We give you praise for the things that you have done in our lives. And, and uh, most of all, we praise you for what you've done in saving us, redeeming us from our sins. So we thank you. We thank you for your work. We thank you also for your word that we get to look at this morning. We get to sit under, uh, under your word this morning. And I pray, Lord, that we would learn how to interpret our lives and understand our lives and even our own selves in light of what Scripture says instead of the other way around, which is, of course, our natural bent. And so we ask your help this morning. Ask that you would help us to be attentive to your word. We pray that you, by your spirit, would use your, your word proclaimed to work in us, to equip us, to strengthen us, to build us up, to encourage us in the faith. So we submit ourselves to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you are in Acts chapter 4, and of course you remember what has been happening, that uh, in Acts chapter 3 we had the lame beggar healed, and this was a man who had sat outside the temple asking alms for decades, and people saw him, he was, he was a, a, a well-known figure, because every time he'd walk in the temple there would be this guy sitting there, and, and uh, Peter and John come along, and, and in the name of Jesus Christ they heal him, and so he jumps up, and he gets to run around and leap and jump for joy and praise God and he's walking around and everyone can look and remember where he was and why he was sitting where he was all those decades and now he's leaping and praising God and this this uh, causes them to gather around Peter and John and and so Peter and John of course being uh, the apostles of Christ they begin to preach and they begin to proclaim Jesus did this it wasn't us uh, this was this was the working of Jesus in uh, in healing this man and so of course, that gathers a big crowd and many people respond, but the uh, religious leaders don't like that. And so Peter and John actually end up getting arrested for what they've done. And, and we discussed last week more about that. Well, they're, they're finally released and uh, they weren't they weren't in in prison long they stayed overnight and then they they testified before the council and and it seems like they were released that same day and so it wasn't a, a long incarceration or anything like that but as soon as they get out what do they do they they go to the church and so i want to read for us verses 23 through 31 of acts chapter 4 so this is immediately what happens after uh, they were released when they were released verse 23 they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. 
And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This passage is a very powerful passage. And it, uh, this prayer that the church prays in light of the persecution they've just gone through really helps us see into the mind of what they were thinking, helps us understand and interpret our world the way they were interpreting their world. And so this is, a, this is a, the record of a prayer, and I think it's powerful for us as we look at it. And the, the theme of this prayer, and you can see that in the title there in our notes, is this is practical comfort in the sovereignty of God. The theme of their prayer is God's sovereignty. They refer to it again and again. And you can see that, first of all, he has sovereignty as creator. He's the creator of all things, right? He made uh, made all things, right? There it says in in, uh, in verse uh, 24, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We owe our existence to him. He's the sovereign God, not just because he's in control of all things, but he's the sovereign God because he created us. We get to draw breath because of him. We exist because of him. And all things exist because of him. And that puts him in a position in charge of all things. And so he is sovereign as the creator. And he created all things. And really it's foundational, in a sense, for all of the other understandings, aspects of understanding sovereignty and what it means. He made us. We exist and all things exist because of his creative work. And so he is the creator of all things. And, and you can see that here because he's called by a special name. And that it's a Greek word, despotes, despotes. And we get the word despot from it. And if you'd go backwards from our English understanding into Greek, you're going to have problems, okay? A despot in English understanding is someone who's a tyrannical, evil, usually evil ruler, very controlling, very... He's a despot, right? It's not a good thing. It's not a compliment for someone to be a despot. So we don't want to take our English idea back into the Greek. We want to draw it from the Greek and come this direction. And when the word is used here, despotes, it's, uh, it's a word that's not often used of God, though it is occasionally used of God. Several times in the New Testament and, and uh, several times, quite a few times in the, uh, the Greek translation uh, called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it's used. And it, usually when it's used, the emphasis is on God's role as creator, which kind of makes sense of what we're talking about here. Right? He's the creator of all things. And so they're going to refer to him in this name that kind of refers um, especially to him being the creator. But it's not just that. The emphasis when you run across this word is not just on creator, but often you'll see it emphasizing his role as judge. Since he is in charge of all things, since he is the master of all things, since he is the originator of all things, he's the creator of them, therefore also he is in a position to render judgment. On all things, and so this word is is often used in regard to his being the judge. For example, in Jonah, you remember the story of Jonah, the disobedient prophet who ran the wrong way because God had uh, sent him to proclaim to Nineveh, and so he gets on a ship and goes the the wrong way, the opposite direction, because he really didn't want the, the the Ninevites to repent. He really wanted God's judgment to be poured out on them, and so he was unwilling to take the message. Well, you know the story, and he eventually ends up there, and he eventually uh, proclaims. 
the, uh, the message to repent from God to the Ninevites. And what do they do? Uh, horror of horrors, they repent, right? And so his response is very interesting, and that, that, that's not what we're here to study, but his response is to be furious. <laughs> He's just downcast because these people have all repented, and I really wanted them to be judged. And so he turns to God in despair, and this is in Jonah chapter 4. He turns to God in despair, and he refers to God as the despotes. Please just take my life. It would be better if I were dead. And so he refers to God in this sense of, of being the one who can render judgment, who has control over life, who can take life away. And so it has that idea in this word. The word also occurs a lot in Daniel chapter 9. And if you think back to Daniel chapter 9, that's a, a very strong uh, prayer of confession and repentance by Daniel on behalf of the people. And throughout there, several times, a half a dozen times in those 10 or 12 verses, he refers to God as despotes because he's talking in a context of judgment. We deserve your judgment. And so we repent. And so that's the idea that's brought up with this idea of despotes. And I, I just bring it up because it's not a super common word in the New Testament, but it refers to creation and judgment. It carries those kind of contexts with it. And so when the apostles here refer to God as despotes, it calls to mind the fact that God is the creator of all things, that he's the master of all things, that he's the judge of all things. And of course, that's going to become significant as we move through this point of prayer. So he's the creator of all things. He originated us. He, he made us. He's referred to here as the despotes. He's the, he's the master of all. He's the sovereign Lord of all. And so he uh, is the creator and the one who wields the power of judgment. And thus he can't be resisted. Look at verse 25 and 26. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage? The people's plot in vain. Actually, if you would turn in your Bibles, this is a direct quotation from the Old Testament. If you would go back to Psalm 2. Go back to Psalm 2. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 4. I want to read several verses around these in Psalm 2. Starting in verse 1. You'll recognize this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their, their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so this quotation that comes up in the middle of the prayer goes back to Psalm 2 and you can see that the most powerful people of the earth can align themselves against God and against his anointed and and does God shake in his boots only from laughter right he's not concerned about that he's not intimidated you can't resist his will you can't resist him he is the creator he is the sovereign lord he is the master and he is the judge and so uh the the kings and the rulers and all the people gathered together are nothing compared to him and he holds them in derision they can't compete and so that's how they're opening their prayer they're calling these things to mind they're they're remembering 
who God is. And they are reminding themselves of who God is and what his role really is. They, they want, the kings want to shake off his rule because they want to be sovereign. And it is not to be. It's a silly thought. He is over all things. And that's the nature of man's rebellious heart to want to shake off God's rulership. But he's in charge of all things, including these kings, including Herod and Pontius Pilate that they're going to bring up. And so we see that God has a position of sovereignty as the creator of all things. He is the, the originator, and therefore he is over all things, right? We move on to the fact of uh, sovereignty as compa- compatible. Now, why do I bring up? That's an odd word that we, uh, we don't bring up in this context a lot. Usually we talk about compatible, meaning is this software compatible with that or something. But the two things, how do these things work together? Well, I want to discuss a couple of different ideas that are found in Scripture. They are each uh, clearly found in Scripture. And then we want to talk about how they work together. The sovereignty of God is not a new thing. It's not a new thing for us to mention in preaching. And if you've read your Bible at all, you know that it's not a new thing to run across the concept of God being master of all things uh, in, in the Bible. God controls all things. I'll give you a couple of examples. You will want to write these down and, and maybe refer to them later. Psalm 115 and verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. That makes sense. He's God. He does all that He pleases. Ephesians 1.11. In that verse, He is the one who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Ephesians 1.11. That's a pretty high statement. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. So He gets to call the shots. He's sovereign. There's nothing new here. Isaiah 46.10. In that verse, He is the one declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. So in Isaiah 46, it's very clear that he's the one who declares the end from the beginning. He doesn't just observe it. He says, here's the end and here's the beginning. He's the one who declares those things. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. Well, what about in the New Testament? That's uh, uh, a couple of Old Testament verses there. There's a picture that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 10 that I've brought up before. And for any bird hunters, it's particularly significant. This is uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? So sparrows, not even ducks, right? Not even chucker, sparrows, okay? Not two, you know, two of them for a penny or whatever, right? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. That's right down to the nitty-gritty of God's sovereignty. He cares if you hit or miss when you're shooting at a chucker. Okay. He's the one who determines whether that bird dies or not. I've never shot at a chucker, but I understand it's uh, very angry when you miss and it happens quite a bit. The Lord is in that somehow, according to this verse. And you're very familiar with the fact that he knows the hair on your head, the number of hairs on your head. That is minute sovereignty right down to the number of hairs on your head. And so that's the message of Scripture. We see that uh, consistently throughout Scripture, that He is sovereign over all things. Well, okay, so that's that's pretty easy, uh, not easy to comprehend, but we see that it's there, and you don't miss it when you read Scripture, okay? He's got His hand on everything, including how many hairs you have on your head. So His uh, He controls all things. Well, what about man? Okay, let's let's set that theological concept aside, and let's think about man. When we think through Scripture and we think about the responsibility of man, is man responsible? 
Everywhere you see it. For example, he's responsible to obey commands. By the way, I could have listed hundreds and hundreds of verses on this. I'm going to, I'm going to mention just a few. I think, it's, I think everyone's clear we are responsible. Uh, we are responsible to obey commands. Ezekiel 20 and verse 11, God says, I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Responsibility. Responsibility to obey the commandments, the statutes. What God tells us to do, He does so because we are responsible to do that. We are also responsible to believe. Think about uh, John chapter 3 and verse 18. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we're responsible to, to believe. We're, we're responsible to respond we see this. We're also responsible even in the smaller things. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so we can see another message of Scripture consistently that we are responsible, that we make meaningful choices. We decide one thing over another thing, and that has meaningful impact on the lives of other people, our own life, and whether we are or are not obeying God. So we make meaningful choices. So you've got these two concepts side by side now. What I want to do is work those together. So the question is, how do we reconcile these truths? The sovereignty of God over all things right down to the the, the last hair that you lost when you brushed your hair this morning. And the responsibility of man. On the other side, the fact that we make meaningful choices. And if you choose this versus this, it has significance and it has meaning. So how do we reconcile those two? Well, uh, one, one uh, pastor I listen to is fond of saying, you don't reconcile friends. These two are not against one another. They work together. And so we don't reconcile, friends. If you will turn in your Bible, keep your finger in Acts chapter 4, and you will turn back to Genesis 50 and verse 20. Thinking through the context of this, this, of course, is about uh, Joseph who has been sold into slavery by his brothers. That's a bad thing, right? He was sold into slavery by his brothers. And uh, you, you know the whole story. He goes down into Egypt and he's a slave for a while. And then he's a, you know, kind of a slave in charge. And then he's a prisoner. And then he becomes eventually the prime minister. And through him, m- millions of people are fed because of the way God blesses him and his work there. And so you see that Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery, and and now he's been raised to the position of prime minister. And through this time, his brothers now have gotten hungry because there's a famine in the land. And so the brothers come to him, hearing that there's food in Egypt. They go and talk to the prime minister, and, and eventually they find out the prime minister is their brother. And so, well, dad's alive, so it's not too bad at first. Uh, but then when dad passes away, they're thinking, uh-oh, This is his time. He has power over us. He's the prime minister. He wields the sword. And we're nobodies. And so they have come to live in the land of Egypt. They're living. um, They are. They receive benefit from being related to the prime minister. But they think pretty pretty surely they're going to die when Jacob dies. And uh, so when that happens, they they go to him and they're concerned. (laughs) You know, don't kill us kind of thing. And this is what Joseph says. This is Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And what I want us to look at this morning is the parallel between those two statements. You meant evil, 
God meant good. And so my favorite question to ask in that context is who meant it? And of course, my kids all know the answer is yes. (laughs) The brothers meant it and God meant it. The brothers made decisions. They acted in an evil way against their brother. They, at first they were going to kill him. They decided not to do that. They just threw him in a pit and then they, they sold him into slavery, you know, because that's better. Uh, it's a half a step better, right? They didn't know what was happening, but they meant evil. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted him gone and they made a buck on the side and they, they didn't want to have to listen to his boasting anymore or whatever. They meant evil. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant good. The Hebrew is parallel. Which one meant it? They both meant it. And so you see that God is sovereignly working in that situation and He intends for Joseph to be thrown into a pit. He intends for Joseph to be sold into slavery and eventually end up as the prime minister so that people could be fed. He meant that for good. His intentions all along were good, and God accomplishes His good intentions. Whereas you have the brothers who sold Him into slavery, just wanted to get Him gone and make a buck while they were doing it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Well, maybe that's a unique passage. Maybe that's a strange, you know, verse that just kind of by itself. Well, I don't think so. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background of what's going on here. The nation of Israel has been disobedient and... They have rebelled against their God. They are uh, going after idols and, and uh, they're disobedient in general ways. And so God sends prophets to warn them, caution them, etc. And more than that, He also sends the nation of Assyria. So it's time for, the, it's time for Israel to be disciplined. And so what does God do? Well, He, he whistles up the nation of Assyria to come and discipline the people of Israel. God intends to bring about discipline for the people of Israel. They need to understand the consequences of their actions. They need to understand the direction of the, the choices they're making. And so he brings these, uh, the, the Assyrians in to render judgment in this sense, to be the, uh, the rod in his hand. And you can see the language that he uses here. I'll start in Isaiah chapter 10 and reading in verse 5, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger... The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. He's he's saying Assyria is the instrument I'm going to use to tread down the nation of Israel, to discipline, to bring discipline upon the nation of Israel, covenant curses upon the nation of Israel. But he, that is the Assyrian king, Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. So what's in the king of Assyria's heart? I'm just obeying the Lord to discipline the nation of Israel. (laughs) No, he wants to destroy everybody. He, he's acting out of arrogance and he's, he's acting out of self, self-aggrandizement. For he says, verse 8, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arped? Is not Samaria like Damascus? 
As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. And look down at verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it? Or as if the staff should lift him who is not wood? So you have God bringing in the Assyrians to render judgment, to bring discipline against the nation of Israel because they have become a godless people and they deserve discipline and they need it. And so God brings in the Assyrians. And then what does God do after the Assyrians wreak havoc on the nation of Israel? He turns around and disciplines them. And why does he do it? Because of what he intended. The king of Assyria does not so intend. He meant something different. He meant to wreak havoc. He meant to annex another people and to, to take all of their money and to show his dominance over them and build himself up as, as even greater now because I had conquered all these people and I'm just going to throw Israel into the mix and now I'm great. He's doing it out of his own pride and his own selfish and sinful pursuits. And what does God say? Because of the pride of your heart, because of your intentions, I'm going to come and judge you as well. You were just an instrument in my hand and you were pretty sure of yourself that you were actually in charge of it all. And so I'm going to bring judgment. And so you have the fact that the nation of Assyria is actually responding. They're they're acting in obedience to what God ultimately intends, namely bring judgment on the people of Israel. But they do so from a heart that wants something completely different. They just want to annihilate them. They couldn't care less about obeying God. They couldn't care less about bringing covenant curses or discipline or anything like that. The Assyrians just want to mow them down for their own glory. And God says, well, I used you to discipline my people and I will discipline you because of your heart. And so you see that both are working together, the sovereignty of God working in that situation and yet the choices of people involved. Did Assyria intend to go down to Israel and wage war? Absolutely. And they did so for their own purposes. Just like the brothers of Joseph who meant it for evil. King of Assyria meant this for evil. We're going to mow another group down and they're going to be dogs. And God meant that same thing. Just like he did with the brothers of Joseph. God meant that for good that people would be able to eat. God means this for good that the people of Israel would be disciplined. And so you see God working together. And so men intended. and They they intend what they do for their own purposes and with their own motives. And God intends those same actions, but for His purposes and with His motives. And there's a difference between His purposes and motives versus our purposes and motives. And it's not just evil and good. It's that God is almighty and will accomplish His purposes. Will actually bring them about. So that what He intends comes to happen, comes to pass. And it is accomplished and it is good while at the same time the people who are involved are doing those same things choosing those same actions but for their own purposes and the stories we've looked at they've meant them for evil so turn back to acts chapter 4 and we're going to see a picture here what i've called a herod and company and god's plan 
these verses, verses 27 and 28, uh, exemplify for us exactly what we're talking about. And I think this is one of the most powerful passages on the topic of how the sovereignty of God, which we see everywhere in Scripture, works together with the meaningful choices of man. 27 and 28. So he's just finished quoting from, from uh, Psalm 2 there, why did the Gentiles rage, etc., right? And he says in verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Okay, so they were gathered together just like the Gentiles and the kings and the rulers were gathered together. Right? They were gathered together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So we have an illustration, perhaps the most powerful illustration of this truth, truth of how the sovereignty of God works together with the meaningful, willful choices of man. That you have Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the other people who rose up against Jesus gathered together. Gathered there in Jerusalem to come against the Lord and against your anointed, right? Jesus, whom you anointed. And so these people... They're gathered together. They've, they've, they've thrown in their lot together to come against Christ, to attack Him, to, to throw a guilty verdict, to declare that He should be crucified, and then to carry it out. All of, the, all of those things they chose to do. Were they coerced? Is there any indication anywhere in the text that Herod really wanted to do the right thing, but, you know, God made him do something different? What about the people in the streets shouting, crucify him, crucify him? And just a few days earlier, they had been saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What changed? Their hearts changed. Something changed within them. Were they doing what they wanted to do when they cast their vote against Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely they were. The same with Pontius Pilate. The same with everyone involved. Just like these other passages we've looked at, we see that the sovereignty of God works in concert with the meaningful choices of men so that in this situation you have them all gathered together and what are they gathered together to do? We're going to do the Lord's will here. I, I don't... They may have used those terms because they, they, they uh, thought they were standing up for God or something in there. Were they gathered together to do their own purposes? to accomplish their own purposes. Just like the brothers of Joseph, we're going to do this. Just like the king of Assyria, hey, we're going to take advantage of this opportunity. So you have these people gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed to do, to do whatever they wanted. But look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So here you have, in this second verse, in verse 28, you have the sovereign God's picture of the exact same things. And it doesn't just say, He knew it was going to happen. It says it was his, by His hand and His plan. He intended this, just like He intended for Joseph to be thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. God was behind this. And so the, the evil men were gathered together to put Jesus to death, to do all that they did to him. And God was sovereignly at work intending those exact same things, but for a different purpose, isn't it? And that different purpose is your salvation and my salvation. This passage is powerful to me because it's talking about 
the worst sin ever committed. I think this is the worst sin ever committed. That the Son of Man, the Son of God Himself, Jesus, holy and righteous, should be falsely accused, arrested, flogged, put on farce trials, and executed. This is the Son of God, and we put Him to death. This is the greatest sin that was ever committed. And what does it say here? It was according to the, what God intended, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It wasn't plan B. It was God's plan A. God wasn't making the best of Herod's decisions, cleaning up after the fact. It says he predestined it. He intended for it to happen before, long before it even happened. And so you have this clear picture here of the sovereignty of God working through these situations, working so that the son would be falsely accused, arrested, flogged, tried, executed. God intended that. It was his very specific and purposeful intention that that happened. And all the while, Herod and Pontius Pilate and those screaming, crucify him, crucify him, were working from their own motives to accomplish the same thing. So who intended it? They both intended it. But you and I can praise God that God himself who intended it, intended it for our good for the deliverance of a particular people and the glorification of himself. So you have these ideas of the sovereignty of God working together very closely with the, 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 the choices, the meaningful, willful choices of man. Man is indeed making choices. He does so for his own purposes, usually evil, usually selfish, Man does so for his own purposes, but God, meanwhile, plans and predestines those same things to happen. But he intends and he actually accomplishes good from them. And our passage, I think, is the greatest imaginable picture of that truth going on right here. Point three in your outline there, you see that sovereignty as comfort is how I've listed that. Sovereignty as comfort. Often, when we think about sovereignty, it might be a little scary to us because it, it keeps clear to us that we are tiny, that we are itty-bitty, and that God is big, that He is almighty. And that can have some, some very important effects on us. But did you notice what they get from it? Do you notice what they gather from the sovereignty of God working in this situation? Look at verse 29. So they've just been talking about this greatest, uh, uh, most the clearest picture of the sovereignty of God working together with the meaningful, willful choices of man. And this is what they say, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So after this, remember the context. Peter and John have just been released from jail. 
They were just brought before the council and interrogated. Persecution is beginning. It's going to get worse, but persecution is beginning. And so when they go to prayer, what do they do? Well, first of all, it's interesting that they identify their own persecution with Jesus' persecution. Do you see what it said there? Verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, etc., etc., to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined and accomplished. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. He's just, they've, they've just been talking about those people who were gathered together in fulfillment of Psalm 2 to come against the Lord and against His anointed, and they don't even switch pronouns. And they just say, you know, those guys who came against Jesus to do whatever your hand and your plan to accomplish, yeah, look on their threats because now they're threatening us. You see, Jesus said, the world hates me, they will, it will hate you. The world persecutes me, it will persecute you, followers of Christ. Expect this. And so they're, they're reminding themselves of that. They're reminding themselves of the fact that if the world stood against Jesus, hated Jesus, put Jesus to death, why would we expect anything different for us? And so they're saying, well, Jesus said it was going to happen. It makes sense. And we're seeing it begin to happen. So they identify their own persecution as actually persecution happening to Christ, which you're going to see consistent uh, throughout the book of Acts, that they identify, even when they take beatings, they rejoice because they got to participate, that they got to be included, that they were honored in such a way that they could receive beatings on Christ's behalf. And so they identify themselves with even the persecution of, uh, of Christ. And so that's the first thing they do. This persecution is a persecution. Of, uh, it's just like what came to Jesus and it's coming to us. Jesus said it would come to us also. They've been told to expect it. And by reminding themselves of God's sovereignty, they're able to find great peace when it does come. Because Jesus said it would come. The next point there is persecution and peace. Something that strikes me about their prayer. When they get done and they say, and now, Lord, 29, right? So they've been talking theology. They've been reminding themselves of truths of Scripture and what's been going on, the sovereignty of God working with the choices of man. And, and now they're going to bring it to bear and they're going to make their request. And what's their request? Look on their threats. The request isn't even destroy them. They're standing against your people, God. The request isn't even, make them stop. Don't let them do it anymore. That's not their request. Because of having worked through Psalm 2 and what it talks about and understanding and reminding themselves that God is really in charge of all things, when it comes time to pray for their situation about people who are persecuting them, people who are bringing difficulty into their lives, all they say is, look upon their threats, Lord. Look upon their threats. They're trusting God to such a degree that even though the the nations rage, even though the the kings are, are conspiring together, it's not even cause for concern. Lord, look on their threats. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. Because God is sovereign over those making the threats, and He is sovereign over the threats and the persecution that comes. And so we can submit to God. There's a very great peace that comes from that. Look upon their threats. And finally, persecution and boldness. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Lord, you, you, you take care of that. 
what, what, you, what you do with their threats and the persecution, that's fine. Let us speak boldly. Let us proclaim boldly the truth of Christ, the truth of salvation in Christ. That's what they ask for. That's their concern. That's what they want. It, the, the sovereignty of God gives them a very great boldness to go and proclaim and to preach it. Because the persecution they might receive as a result is from the hand of God. And the, the, the result amongst the people to whom they preach is in the hand of God. So let us preach boldly. And look at what happens there in verse 31. It's exactly the answer they get. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God answered them. He even shook the place. It's like God's amen or God's, all right, okay, yes, answer. And they were all filled with the Spirit. And what did they do when they were filled with the Spirit? They continued to preach, to speak the Word of God with all boldness. So this passage is powerful to me and it's extremely comforting. The sovereignty of God working together with the meaningful, willful choices of man. And so I have a couple of uh, conclusions here that I draw from this. Just a couple. There, there are more. You could ponder this for a long time. There are many of them. The first one, since God really is sovereign over all the events and circumstances in our lives, we don't have to be preoccupied with the results of us sharing the gospel or with the results of anything that we do in Jesus' name. That's not our purview. Look upon their threats. Just give us boldness to preach. Give us boldness to preach. Second of all, Conversation about God's sovereignty rightly reminds us of our own tiny stature before God. God is almighty and we are tiny. And sometimes this can be kind of a disconcerting thought if that's all we think about. If, if when we think about the sovereignty of God, we just picture ourselves as tiny, tiny. That's a true thought and it's a helpful thought and it's, it's instructive to us. But it is not all of the truth that's involved in the sovereignty of God in comparison to us. And what happens is we begin to see the purpose for which God uses His sovereignty. And what's the purpose in this passage? The salvation of you and me. So how does God wield His sovereignty? To save you and to save me. That's what He secured for us. That's how He used His sovereignty. And that changes our picture adds to our picture. We are tiny and He's enormous and sovereign, but He takes care care for us. That He would work all things out in such a way that Christ would be uh, detained, that He would be arrested, that He would be lied about, that He would be flogged, that He would be falsely tried, that He would be crucified on purpose. God's purpose so that we might know Him to save a particular people. And that's a powerful thing. That's an encouraging thing. That's, 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 in my own estimation, that's the pinnacle. That's the highest picture, the highest usage in that sense of the sovereignty of God. That, that picture where He is saving us, that is for our good, and it is for His greatest glory. So what does God use His glory for? To save His people. To glorify Himself. But thirdly, and this one is a lot closer to home, There is comfort to be found in a biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God that doesn't exist apart from a biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God. That comfort is that this thing that came to me is from His hand. 
It's from his hand. Who meant it? Well, God meant it. And the person doing evil to you or, or whatever, they, they mean it for their own purposes. And God means that thing for you. And he means it for good. Many of you know who Johnny Erickson Tata is. She was uh, injured in a swimming accident decades and decades ago when she was a teenager. And so she's, um, she's in a, confined to a wheelchair and, uh, and she has served the Lord in all manner of ways. And she understands suffering. And this is what she writes. She and uh, Stephen Estes wrote a book together called When God Weeps, Why Our Sufferings Matter to the Almighty. So in discussing this topic of sovereignty... We all hesitate, so I'm I'm quoting now, we all hesitate here. What about my little girl who was run over by a trash truck? Here's where the Bible becomes practical. Imagine a God who didn't deliberately permit the smallest details of your particular sorrows. What if your trials weren't screened by any divine plan? What if God insisted on a hands-off policy towards the tragedies swimming your way? Think what this would mean. Either God rules or Satan sets the world's agenda and God is limited to reacting. In which case, the Almighty would become Satan's cleanup boy, sweeping up after the devil has trampled through and done his worst, finding a way to wring good out of the situation somehow. But it wasn't his best for you. It wasn't plan A. It wasn't exactly what he had in mind. In other words, God would manage to patch things up. Your suffering itself would be meaningless. One Christian writer who believes that God has little to do with the specific circumstances that come your way expressed it like this. Sadly, there was no meaning in those deaths. Each was a bizarre, horrible coincidence. Nothing more. Therein lies the tragedy. The sovereignty of God from a biblical perspective is comforting for us when we're suffering. Because that suffering that you're going through or have gone through, that suffering you fear, if it comes comes through God's purpose and intention. He means it. It didn't come to you and then God has to clean up after the fact and He's just really good at cleaning up. If that were the case, then there was no purpose for that suffering coming to you. It was meaningless. Your suffering has no meaning. And that is not the biblical picture Hear me again, that is not the biblical picture. The biblical understanding of this is that God planned it. And He has a purpose in your life for that suffering. I don't know what that purpose is. I understand from Romans 8, 28 that it's good. I don't know what it is. And I don't... I I, I hesitate. I hesitate to speak too boldly in specific situations that, yeah, God might do this. He said it would be for good. That's all I know. But if God is sovereign, and we looked at verses we cannot argue with, 
God is sovereign right down to the number of hairs on your head. He's certainly sovereign over, and from our verse here, He planned, and it was by His hand, that even suffering circumstances come into your life. And He does so for a purpose. And I don't know what that purpose is for you. I can't tell you. But it's for your good. And it's from the hand of Almighty God for your good, for His glory. There is comfort there. There is comfort in the sovereignty of God. Nothing catches Him off guard and nothing wasn't intended by Him. So your suffering has meaning. And some of you have suffered or are suffering in ways I cannot comprehend. And I do not want to be glib in speaking into your situation. But these are deep and resounding biblical truths that are comforting. And for the early church who was just beginning to face persecution, it provided comfort for them. And it can provide comfort where you are with what you remember, the tragedy you recall, or the tragedy you're going through right now. Sovereign God intends that for you, for your good, and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy truths that are everywhere in Scripture. We see them consistently in Scripture. And if, if, if I think about them, I draw great, great comfort from the fact that you are in charge, that you really are sovereign Lord. So I can look at my difficulties and my suffering, my pain, and know that it's not just the result of living in a sinful world and, oh, it just happened to me, but has no ultimate significance. But in fact, you, Almighty God, who loved me so much that He gave Jesus, gave His own Son to die for me, brought that into my life on purpose for a purpose. And I take comfort. And Father, I pray for those here who have suffered in ways I cannot comprehend, and there are many. Encourage them with this truth, I pray. Remind them that even though we don't understand the purpose, you do, and you did it for a purpose that is for our good and for your glory. And we desire both of those things. So comfort them. May we all be rooted in this truth of who you really are and who we are under you. So bless each one here, I pray. Thank you that you are sovereign Lord. Thank you that you actively sent Jesus to the cross, not making the best of a bad situation, but on purpose for the purpose of redeeming for yourself a particular people. Father, we give you glory and we praise you in Jesus' name. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. If you want to